Hi, everybody. And thank you for joining us for another Alliant Employee Benefits Compliant with Alliant podcast, bringing you insights into employee benefits compliance. I'm your host, Christine Blanco. I'm the Director of Compliance here at Alliant Employee Benefits, and with me is Diana Craig. Hello, everyone. Also a compliance consultant and attorney here at Alliant Employee Benefits. Today, we're going to talk about um, a case that's been much in the news, Texas v. Azar. Um, it's the case about the ACA and the constitutionality of the ACA, and we recently heard from the administration who uh, took a departure from a prior position and basically just said, yep, we want to see the, old, the whole ACA struck down as unconstitutional. That caused a lot of press, a lot of fuss, I think a, a long pause on Capitol Hill. So Diana and I are going to take you through sort of what's happening there procedurally and the background so that you guys know um, sort of what we're looking at, especially as we head into the election season. So it, the the procedural posture of this case is interesting because generally the Department of Justice, which is part of the administration, is responsible or will step in to defend challenges to federal laws. And clearly this is a challenge to a federal law. It's a challenge to the ACA by 20 give or take Republican attorneys general of you know states where generally you'll see Republican governors and they're challenging the constitutionality of the ACA. I'm going to let Diana talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And in, in a normal posture, the DOJ would step in and defend that law. Well, given sort of the political leanings, the Department of Justice has has sort of lukewarm, you know, that lukewarmed that defense, for lack of a better term. term. And we've had uh, the Democratic states, so I think there are 16, again, give or take, maybe up to 21 at this point, um, Democratic attorneys general step in or intervene is technically the term to defend the law. And so what we have here is, you know, basically a very political, um, you know, somewhat political theater really going on um, on a, a constitutional law issue in federal court. So um, when you hear so it's you know when you hear sort of the shock and awe as it relates to the administration's position, it's because it's rare, and that's an apolitical statement. It is rare for the administration not to step in and defend a federal law. So that's where we are from a procedural posture. Diana, why don't you tell us a little bit about the legal issues? Well, I'm going to talk to you about how we got here, um, and it's it's got a little bit of a long history. I'm talking about the Tax Cuts and Job mm-hmm. Act that was passed in December of 2017, and that um, that tax bill obviously did a lot of different things. M- most importantly for... Um, for the purposes of our jobs, at least, right, Chris? Mm -hmm. It zeroed out the individual mandate. So just to set the stage for what the individual mandate was and why it's important, we want to just revisit really quickly um, some of what or the bulk of what the ACA was trying to do. And it did a lot of things. So uh, the ACA created new rating rules. It eliminated pre-existing condition exclusions. Um, it uh, had something called guaranteed issue and guaranteed renewability. So it it created this environment where there was all of a sudden going to be unprecedented access to health insurance. Um, and to sort of make that structure work, to make that unprecedented access work, there were other pieces of the puzzle. So there was an employer 
pay or play penalty, and there still is, that's basically asking employers to do their part, to pick up their piece of the pie, right. and to make sure that that uh, unprecedented new access didn't just result in sick people coming to the table. There was an individual mandate penalty. So if you didn't have minimum essential coverage, you were going to pay a tax penalty, and it started out very low. It was like 95 bucks. It gradually grew, I think, for 2016 through 2018. It was... Uh, $695 or if greater, 2.5% of your household income. And that individual mandate was designed to sort of stabilize the market um, because we can't really sustain an environment where we've opened the floodgates and only very, very sick people go through. It was what brought the carriers to the table when they were designing the ACA, I think, to begin with, right? At least certainly one of the things. And let's not also forget that the ACA has a huge Medicaid expansion component of it, too, so that most of the coverage we're talking about here really is Medicaid expansion. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the market even still today is not the individual market. Like, if you look at the pie of where coverage comes from, it's still largely employer plans, and then there are governmental plans, and Medicaid expansion was a lot of that. Um, And I don't have a stat on what percentage of the market the individual market is, but it's just just not a huge percentage of the market. So when, uh, when the states challenged the ACA, basically they said, uh, with the individual mandate set now set to zero, it wasn't completely stricken. It was just reduced down to zero. You've basically knocked out uh, one of the legs of the stool. The whole stool must fall. And um, and really, most legal scholars uh, don't agree with that argument, but the court sure did, and it struck the entire law in its entirety, saying that the problematic provision is not severable. The whole law falls. Right. And so, you, if you remember to the. The, the premise, at least in part, of uh, the court's decision um, relates back to the big Supreme Court case, um, NFIB versus Sebelius, back in I don't know, 60, 2012, I think, where um, they upheld, the Supreme Court being they uh, upheld the ACA based on Congress's taxing power. So then the argument is, there's no longer a tax. And so because there's no longer a tax, it's no longer constitutional under Congress's taxing power, and then it's all connected. But, you know, the interesting thing um, prior to the change to our U.S. Attorney General was the DOJ's previous Mm -hmm. position had been that this is actually severable. I mean, Mm -hmm. so they were kind of agreeing with the masses. um, And actually, again, I said most legal scholars, legal scholars on On both sides. Both sides and DOJ had sort of thought, no, no, this is clearly very severable. But now we have a new attorney. And, and that's a really good point. Is that the reason I think what you know the, the, the collective you know <gasps> gasp on Monday or earlier this week <laughs> on the on, on the administration's position was that they had come out after the Texas case to Diana's point and said, yeah, no, no, we agree that the rest of this can stand, um, and and we're actually going to file a brief along with the defendants um, defending those portions of the law. And then to Diana's point, who knows, you know, what the the pivot really was about, but certainly there is a new attorney general. And and he was asked, I think, in a hearing about about this case and said, yes, he'd like to reconsider it. And so that may be the genesis of the pivot. I think I know what the collective gasp was really about. It, oh, and us. <laughs> and I think that's because nobody really wants this in the news right now. Uh, right. Republicans don't want it in the news. Democrats don't want it in the right. news. Um, because it really, you know, we know right now uh, with Republican-held Senate, 
nothing huge is going to happen right now, but this potentially tees up the election, um, the 2020 election, to to a stance where I, I just think this isn't what either side really wants to be. Um, right. No one wants to be forced to have a discussion on this right now, right? Certainly on either side. Well, the Democrats are taking it and going one direction, but... Um, you know, healthcare is obviously going to be front and center in the election cycle. And I just think, um, I think people were taking a pause on that <laughs> until earlier this week. Again, apolitically, we know it's going to be an issue, but this really sort of thrusts it into the forefront for discussion when maybe um, certain parties aren't ready for that. Oh, it, it tees it up in a completely uncomfortable way. And yeah. so that I think that was the gas. <laughs> yeah, I think that was probably the gas. So let's take you through a little bit about, you know, those are the legal issues. We'll see, you know, Diana's point is well taken that legal scholars on both sides of the aisle have said, eh, we don't know whether these, this legal argument is tenable or not. Um, but at this point, uh, they had asked, requested the court to go through an expedited briefing cycle. That was denied, from what I understand. So it'll go on through the, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals on its standard cycle. So I think initial briefs were filed a couple days ago. So maybe by late summer, early fall, we'll see a decision, maybe before that. But um, we'll, we'll, we will file, uh, we will follow, rather, this. And, and we're not filing anything in that case. As <laughs> I don't miss out. all of the things I used to have to file. <laughs> That's right. Um, and, and we'll see, you know, where it goes. I mean, if, if they strike down the ACA, we'll have lots more to talk about. Well, and it won't be over at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals if, if – I think either way, that's going to go up to the Supreme Court. Absolutely. This is where this will end up. We will see the ACA yet again landing in the highest court. So stay tuned and thanks for joining us.